Hey, it's Mark. The start of the year is a time when we at MMM often look for proof points of pharma's progress and R&D productivity. In 2023, according to a tally by the journal Nature Reviews Drug Discovery, the FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research and Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research greenlit 71 new therapeutics. That's the highest number in the FDA's history, the journal points out, and well above the average of 53 per year during the 2014 to 2023 span. While that volume is unprecedented, naturally, drug makers want to increase their pipeline output further. The traditional way has been through upping the number of shots on goal. The more drugs that enter clinical testing, the better chance that some will make it over the finish line. But another method of improving win rates is gaining attention, better decision-making. It sounds quite simple. But consider that cancer med Keytruda, which is now literally the world's best-selling drug, was initially on Merck's list of molecules destined to be outsourced, until a competitor's positive data prompted the drug maker to take a second look at the commercial potential of PD-1s. Indeed, there's much potential in making the R&D process more predictable. And to do that, companies are infusing AI into their drug development. French drug maker Sanofi made a very public commitment to doing so last year. To find out whether AI is living up to the hype, my colleague Jack interviewed Helen Marianos, Sanofi's global head of R&D portfolio strategy. As Marianos explains, the drug maker has transformed its culture to incorporate Gen AI into its drug discovery, and the technology has already altered the trajectory of some of its decision-making. While the proof is anecdotal so far, Mariano says, Sanofi ultimately wants to measure the impact on cycle times. This week on the show, how Sanofi is turning to AI to boost its probability of R&D success. And let's just hear with the health policy update. Hey, Mark, the Medicare drug price negotiation process has officially kicked off after the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services sent out its initial price offers for the program's first 10 drugs. Plus, I'll preview next week's Senate hearing with Big Pharma. And Jack, what's trending in healthcare this week? We're talking about Publicis Health's $350 million opioid settlement, Demi Lovato's heart attack snafu, and Estella's Pharma's return to the Super Bowl. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Helen, it's wonderful to have you on the show. I want to start off our conversation kind of with a, a big picture question. If you can take me inside the R&D strategy at Santa Fe and how it relates to play to win. I'm really kind of curious about where that stands at the start of 2024. Well, it's a super exciting time to be at Sanofi. Thanks so much for having me. We are embarking on a strategy to really be the premier innovator in immune science. We outline a pretty exciting portfolio of medicines coming from our R&D organization at R&D Day in December of last year. And we're really excited to really transform the pipeline where we've doubled the number of studies that we have starting in phase three. And very excited about bringing these transformational medicines to patients. And playing to win is really about focusing on innovation and driving that innovation to bring uh, transformational medicine to patients. And I am really kind of curious, you talk about obviously having a focus on rare disease. We're having this conversation mm -hmm. about a week or so after the Inhibrix uh, announcement. Obviously, that's an external 
uh, pull to bring in some resources for the company. What, as it relates to the rare disease work that you're doing in-house with R&D, you know, what in the pipeline has really got you the most excited or got the company most excited? Um, well, we're, um, you know, very excited about some of our early work in research phases related to um, kind of the next wave, what we think will be the next wave of innovation for rare diseases around like genomic medicine. So really an opportunity to potentially um, transform a lot of those rare diseases. We have a history of rare disease and a focus on rare disease, both commercially. And we're really thinking about, you know, trying to drive and bring the innovations in science forward there. And we have an exciting couple of medicines that we're focusing on and really focusing on uh, hemophilia with Altuvio in a later stage medicine, such as as well. So Rare diseases is something that we'll remain focused on and really thinking about trying to drive innovation in that space. And a lot of what we're thinking about mechanistically is really focused on immune science. It's interesting to hear you kind of outline where you're looking to put those R&D dollars and focus there. I wanted to ask you, because you talked about having the innovative technologies are able to get you across the finish line. Obviously, the name of the game is generative AI. And I feel like every conversation I've had with an executive over the past few months has related in some way to AI. Your organization is obviously invested in there. Can you talk to us about the Play app and we can kind of delve into some more specifics? Sure. So really our like broader ambition across fantasy is to be the first pharmaceutical company that's powered by artificial intelligence or AI at scale. And that's really about giving um, the people in our organization the tools and the technologies that allow us to focus on insights and make better everyday decisions. So that's the use of like artificial intelligence by experts and like data scientists in R&D. You know, so that's sort of expert AI focusing on accelerating uh, drug discovery, enhancing clinical trial design, increasing our probability of success etc. But in addition to that, we're really like trying to enhance our day-to-day jobs and everyday decision-making um, and leveraging AI for that. And that's kind of what we're calling snackable AI. And that is um, delivered through a platform that we've co-developed with AV Labs. It's called Play. And it's uh, a tool that is aggregating over a billion data points across Sanofi. There's a number of modules um, that are in place across the company. So for quality, for manufacturing, for financials, for, you know, marketed products, for R&D, it's really across, across the company. And we're leveraging it specifically, I'll speak about how we're leveraging in R&D, is to look at actionable insights coming from um, the artificial intelligence And really, it transforms them into recommendations for us that we can then consider from like strategic decisions, you know, should we invest in this particular medicine to operation, operational decisions. So if we add clinical trial sites, can we accelerate enrollment for a particular study by how much, how much time could we save potentially, what would it cost to add the additional site? It gives you those instant impacts. So you can play around with different choices 
And instead of it taking like analyses and lots of different conversations with different people, you get the, the insights right at your fingertips through this app. And then you can take that information and have the right, you know, human conversations, ask the right questions, have the right kind of conversation to really enhance uh, those conversations, to enhance the decision making. And it enables sharing, you know, we're a large company. So it breaks down, it breaks down a lot of the silos that can take place at a large company by having it all in one place and where the data across um, the company is shared. So for example, you know, someone who's working in the commercial organization can leverage the R&D data and say, okay, so what is the AI saying in terms of when this product is going to get approval in this particular market so that I can staff the launch appropriately when I need people in that market? And so the data are available to, to plan those kinds of resourcing across the company. And we're also able to look at it to do these kind of what-if scenarios. What if I add sites? Um, what if I accelerate this particular program? Um, what if I pulled a couple different levers or followed a couple different recommendations that the AI is suggesting? Could I potentially accelerate my time to market and have a first to market position, for example? And so we're really using that across the company, but specifically in R&D to help um, accelerate our operations, increase the um, likelihood of success of our clinical studies and also make smarter uh, investment decisions. It's really interesting to hear you talk about how you're actually making that work on a day-to-day basis. I am curious how you measure success on that because it sounds like there's a lot of different applications for the app. And I'm curious if you have anything where you're, you're saying, okay, so the use of this app has contributed to this project or this aspect of drug development. You know, how are you able to say it's working out well? Because I know that's one of the issues with AI is like it can it can yeah. generate or facilitate a lot of different things. But how do you actually measure its success in getting you to where you want to go with your mission? It's a great question. And it's actually a really hard thing to do in this space um, when you're, you know, influencing decisions and then the outcomes of those decisions are are far into the future, especially like the life cycle of, um, of what we're talking about here in R&D. The way that we're thinking about it and what I can say in terms of the immediate impact and how we're measuring success is how it's really transforming the culture at the company and how we manage and govern like projects, the kinds of conversations that we're having leading up to the decisions that we're making. So there's real tangible, you know, can I put a number on it specifically? I can't put a number on those kinds of things. It's, it's more of a cultural transformation at this point in time. But based upon what we're seeing and the insights that we're getting, we're also measuring success on, you know, how, uh, how is the AI influencing specific decisions that we're making? So we're saying, you know, the trajectory of this decision was altered from based upon some insights that we got from the play app or, or leveraging AI. So at the moment, that's anecdotal. But w- what we anticipate is that we will be able to accelerate our cycle time by being able to make faster and more informed decisions on like clinical operations. And we anticipate that we should see improvements there around 10 to 20 percent quicker cycle times that will take time to realize and to really be able to measure that. 
And then we anticipate that we should be able to kind of increase our likelihood of success as well over time. But how we're measuring it now is really in that cultural revolution and like decision by decision. You know, how did the AI and the conversation around the AI influence that particular decision? And did we make a different choice than we would have otherwise made? So it's really at that stage today, this is about a year old in terms of what we can measure, but we fully expect over time, we'll be able to see improvements in cycle time and improvements in our probability of success. Yeah. You talk about being able to see the improvements I had, uh, in Silico medicines president. Yes. I had, I, I had Michelle. <laughs> I Chen. listened to that. Yeah. And it was interesting <laughs> here talking, you know, obviously I know that your two companies have a relationship and being able to yes. talk about innovation leading to greater drug development. I bet that there are people in our audience who are looking at something like that or the future of AI and saying, how is that going to be able to benefit me as a pharma company with drug development. I know that you're only about a year or so into this and you're still looking at some of those hardcore uh, metrics that you're going to be able to go on more so than the anecdotal cultural changes. Is there any sort of advice that you would pass along to them who are saying, hey, I want to be able to get that off the ground, whether I'm a legacy, you know, big pharma institution or I'm, you know, maybe a small stage clinical biopharma, you know, where, where would you be able to point them in the direction of saying like, this is how you can start on a small level of taking your AI capabilities and bringing them to the next level for drug development? I, I think that's a great question. I would say the, the thing, the aspects that have made this so far, you know, such a success and really value added in such a short period of time has really been the combination of leveraging the technology and digital as like a as a tool to accelerate a business transformation that you're trying to do anyway, rather than it being like your sole focus, like I want to incorporate AI into my business. It, it was more around, uh, more of a, of a goal to say, you know, we need to be more agile. We need to have access to the right data at our fingertips to drive data-driven decision-making. And we need to transform the way in which we manage and govern our projects. Or, you know, we need to transform the way in which we discover molecules um, and the way in which we develop molecules. And it comes from a place of that, that business transformation, where then you're saying, okay, um, these are the business changes that I want to make. And what are the levers that I have to drive those business changes? And how can I leverage digital and AI to do that? And then you apply that like across the, the value chain. And so, you know, what I would recommend is focus on how you can leverage it as a tool, as an accelerator for a business transformation that you're trying to drive rather than it being you know, I want to incorporate AI into, you know, everything that we're doing. It's, it's much more of a, we need to, you know, we need to modernize Sanofi and we need to become more agile. We need to be able to take data-driven decisions. We need the best information at our fingertips. And then it, it becomes very clear that AI is a way in which to deliver that. And that can be a big part of the solution. And I think that's also why we've applied it at scale across the value chain because it's, it's inherently now becoming the way in which we're working and being integrated and embedded into the modernization of a lot of our business processes. 
rather than it being, you know, like, let's look at a cool tool and then see how we can apply it. It's much more of, this is how we need to transform our business. What are the best tools to help us do that? And AI happens to be one of them and one that can be applied across the entire value chain. And I want to ask a question following up on that last point you made is maybe what you see as the limitations as it relates to AI and drug development, because obviously it can be an accelerator and give you all these different tools that maybe you didn't have your capabilities even two or three years ago, but every new technology does have its limits or its ceilings. So what yeah. do you consider on that front? Because obviously it's not the silver bullet, but it does help you get along in terms of where you want to go. Yes, I think, um, you know, it's really about uh, helping make us and, you know, those of us who are trying to discover and develop medicines smarter and helping us think about things in a different way, providing an alternative perspective. It can't replace the human element. It's really an enhancement to that. And sometimes, you know, you'll get insights that you'll explore them and and they're not actionable or they don't make sense in practice. And that's when you're providing that feedback and their algorithm is learning um, from that. And so there's that subject matter expert that needs to be there at the heart of everything because there are limitations and, and we need to be, you know, be responsible about that. We have to have the accountability with individuals in their roles to make sure that we're making, you know, responsible decisions and we're really using AI responsibly. It's transparent. It has, the, you know, human accountability, et cetera, associated with it. So I think there are limitations that sometimes you get insights from the AI that are just, you know, you have to give it feedback. This is not what I'm looking for. This isn't right. Or you miss this important insight. Um, and then you teach the algorithm and it gets better the next time. And, but you have to start somewhere um, and it will only get better, you know, through that, through that human interaction and that training and that learning. Um, and the only way you'll really get to that is by using it in practice, and especially in the beginning, it won't be perfect and being okay with that and still drawing the value from it and getting the insights and learning and growing and then teaching that algorithm as well. Helen, it's been wonderful having you on the show here. And obviously, there's a lot of innovative stuff that's going on at Santa Fe. That's why you're on the podcast in the first place is obviously because it is kind of leading the way on that front across the farm industry. If we were to have a follow-up conversation in January of 2025, about a year out, and we were looking across the industry, what would be your expectations for adoption or further embrace of AI as it relates to supporting drug development? Do you think that we'll see more in the next year or so, status quo, a regression? I'm kind of curious from your perspective. I think we'll for sure see more. I think, you know, some of us are sort of like at the, at the boundary here and like pushing and pushing and pushing to really like trying to take this as far as it can go. Um, and really pushing the boundaries. I think, uh, you know, there's some like slower adopters that are interested in this. I get calls from peers, like, how are you doing this? Can you talk to me about how this is getting set up? And I'm thinking about this. I've been thinking about it. So I think there'll be more interest and people trying it. I think there will be some setbacks because, you know, it's not going to be perfect the first time and you know we've experienced some of those things that's how we're growing and we're learning and we're really pushing the boundaries 
I think as long as people don't get discouraged and, and push ahead to say, you know, this will eventually, you know, what is the timing of that really transform how medicines are discovered and developed. And you have like a fundamental belief in that. Um, and you keep moving forward. Of course, there'll be setbacks. But I think that overall, there's going to be a, a, an increased um, use of it. Because I think there's some sort of slower adopters who are now getting really talked about quite a bit. And now they're kind of saying, okay, I'm getting left behind because I'm not really focusing on this as part of my job. Let me educate myself and get started on it. So I think it will increase uh, for sure. And there will be setbacks along the way. Uh, but I fundamentally believe over the longer term, it will really transform how, how medicines are discovered and developed. Yeah, it's it's so intriguing to see how your company is leading the way on that. And obviously, you talk about some of the people that may recognize that they're being lapped in that department might be sooner to act than later. So we'll keep an eye posted for how other drug makers advance in that space. But Helen, again, really appreciate you making the time to talk to us about this really innovative aspect of the industry. And hopefully we can have you on in the future to give an update on how all that work is coming along. That sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. The negotiation part of Medicare's new drug price negotiating power has officially begun. Last week, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services gave drug makers its initial price offers for the first 10 drugs selected. Those include therapies manufactured by Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Eli Lilly, and AstraZeneca. Now it's negotiating time. The next several months will be devoted to figuring out the new lower list prices of the drugs, or the maximum fair prices, with a deadline of August 1st. Neither the government nor the drug makers have decided to disclose the initial price offers. Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra called it a milestone in the White House's effort to, quote, ensure people with Medicare get fair prices for prescription drugs. Big Pharma and the government will likely tussle over the negotiation process, given that drug makers have not been happy about the program. Since the Inflation Reduction Act passed in 2022, drug makers have launched some 10 lawsuits against the federal government. Their main arguments seek to invalidate the program. Pharma lobbying group Pharma railed against the latest move in a statement, arguing that, quote, government bureaucrats are operating behind closed doors to set medicine prices without disclosing for months how they arrived at the price. Drug pricing is on the agenda elsewhere as well in the Senate, with the Health, Education, Labor and Pensions, or HELP Committee, holding a hearing this week with Big Pharma. The CEOs of Merck, Johnson & Johnson, and Bristol-Myers Squibb will testify at a hearing on February 8th, while lawmakers grill them about high drug costs. The CEOs of Merck and Johnson & Johnson only agreed to be present after Senator Bernie Sanders threatened to subpoena them. In particular, the hearing will seek answers from the CEOs on why drugs in the U.S. have significantly higher prices than the same drugs in other countries. Sanders noted in a statement that, quote, I hope very much that the CEOs of these major pharmaceutical companies will take a serious look at these incredible price discrepancies and work with us to substantially reduce the prices they charge the American people. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. 
Trending. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome back Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending in healthcare. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. Before we get into our three segments, I want to give a personal condolence to Toby Keith, who passed away this morning before we record the pod at 62. After suffering for 18 months from stomach cancer, Toby Keith was a wonderful country music legend and the first concert I ever went to. So I just wanted to send condolences out to him and his family and all the other fans that are in this time of grieving. But we're going to start with our first story of the week, which is Publis's Health agreeing to pay $350 million as part of a multi-state settlement regarding its role in the prescription opioid crisis. The marketing communications giant will distribute $350 million to every state and U.S. territory affected by the opioid epidemic within the next 60 days as part of help for relief efforts. In addition to the sizable financial aspect of the settlement, the agency will also disclose thousands of internal documents detailing its work for opioid manufacturers, including Purdue Pharma, on a public website. From 2010 to 2021, Publis has served as one of Purdue Pharma's primary marketing firms for its opioid drugs, including OxyContin, which has often been cited as one of the primary drivers for the nationwide epidemic that caused millions to grapple with addiction and killed thousands over the past two decades. Publicists will also stop accepting any client work related to the opioid-based Schedule 2 or Schedule 3 controlled substances per the settlement. In response to a request for comment from MM&M, Publicists said the settlement capped three years of discussions with attorneys general and detailed the past work undertaken for opioid manufacturers by Rosetta, a former agency under the company's umbrella that was shuttered a decade ago. Publicists said, quote, we recognize the broader context in which that lawful work took place. The fight against the opioid crisis in the United States requires collaboration across industries, lawmakers, and communities, and we are committed to playing our part. That's why we work to reach this agreement and why we are also reaffirming our longstanding decision to turn down any future opioid-related projects. Mark, I wanted to bring you in here because obviously you've been covering this for a long time, and I've had conversations with other journalists that we've worked with in the past about what marketing agencies really have to own up to in terms of it, it's not like the opioid crisis happened in a vacuum. There was marketing. There was a whole aspect of that that goes beyond just producing the drugs. Curious your thoughts on this settlement and obviously a huge number there with $350 million. Sure. And a couple of things to unpack there. You know, first of all, just to put the settlement in perspective altogether, companies are expected to pay more than 50 billion with a B to state and local governments over the next two decades, according to Kaiser Family Foundation, which totaled it all up. You've got the opioid manufacturers, J&J, Teva, Allergan, um, big distributors like ABC, Cardinal, McKesson, you know, Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, supermarket chain Kroger's in there as well. So, but the Publicis settlement is, is symbolic in that Publicis Health has pledged to stop accepting any client work, as you said, related to opioid-based schedule two or three controlled substances. So the second part of the question, you know, in terms of um, how much agencies and marketers have to own up to this, you know, I think, you know, while from a financial perspective, it's relatively small compared to what the corporate behemoths are paying. It's still a multi-million dollar figure, multi hundreds of million dollar figure, and that should have a deterrent effect. And, um, you know, there was a time when um, marketing of opioids was considered a, I don't know if I, the term prestigious type of work or not is, is, is a proper one, but, you know, there was this sentiment years ago that, and I think it, it persists in some corners that in, in, the, in the pain category that pain, a lot of, you know, thousands of people are suffering from chronic pain in this country and they need access to powerful pain drugs and uh, nothing is, was as powerful as 
and continues to be the benchmark to this day, you know, you know, these, these opioid drugs. And so, you know, there, you know, from, from everything from medical education to creative, you know, was, you know, around, you know, maintaining access and, uh, in, you know, increasing awareness of these. Obviously we know now the addictive potential of that, of these drugs was, um, uh, was illegally, you know, promoted, uh, as, as, as not being, you know, addictive and, and that therein lied the infraction. Um, I don't expect any other agencies to come out and publicly make the same declaration about rejecting any opioid marketing work. Uh, but, um, you know, these, these kinds of settlements usually have an impact on decisions made behind closed doors. And, and so, um, you know, I would expect that to be the case here. Most attention in the pain category seems to have focused on moving toward non-opioid alternatives anyway. You know, I think Vertex has a, has a drug uh, that we just reported on recently that had some promising phase three uh, results uh, in, in that category. So I would expect the marketing to follow suit. Yeah, I also just want to throw in there that, you know, I, I feel like when we talk about the opioid epidemic, it's sort of developed in, into its own beast now. It's not really even about doctors prescribing too many opioids or, you know, these manufacturers pushing these drugs anymore because in the last several years, as you mentioned, Mark, there's been a lot of settlements, there's been a lot of lawsuits. Um, doctors, you know, the rate of doctors prescribing these drugs has decreased significantly since the opioid epidemic started. Um, but it we're still seeing overdose deaths continue to rise. Opioid overdose deaths actually increased between 2022 and 2023, according to the CDC. Um, so it's almost like the damage is done. It's developed into its own separate beast now, especially with um, the emergence of fentanyl and all of these other complications. And that's still sort of the backdrop that we're working with here. Yeah, I mean, uh, that imbalance of the decrease in prescriptions, but the increase in deaths certainly suggests that that fentanyl right is is definitely the the culprit uh, here lesha and then the next the next frontier you know the illegal use of the diversion um it's it's not coming you know through uh, as, as it once was as much the pill mills and and the and the and the hcp prescribing mm -hmm. so definitely more more work to do on that front and which is another re good reason why you know marketing in this area you know marketers should definitely think twice before taking on this kind of work to say the least yeah, always in favor of more accountability than less and transparency and everything on that front. What do you got next for us, Jack? We're going to talk about Demi Lovato. If we're going to do a hard left-hand pivot, this might as well be it. Demi Lovato performed her 2013 hit Heart Attack as part of her 10-song set list at the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women Red Dress Collection concert in New York City last week. She said, quote, while my next song is about the intense feelings that come with falling in love, as well as heartbreak, opening yourself up, taking risks and not being afraid to do it again. This song has many parallels for me, my journey and a reminder for all of us in the room of just how strong the mind heart body connection truly is. She said when introducing the track, the American, the American Heart Association said it supported Lovato's decision to sing the song at the event and the Hollywood reporter said it was well received by the crowd. Some may recall that Lovato experienced a heart attack after overdosing in 2018. Still, that didn't stop the Internet, and I will put my hand up, myself included, from questioning the decision to perform that specific song at that specific event. And I've included a meme here for those in the studio to see where it said it would be like Lana Del Rey singing Born to Die at a suicide awareness event. Strange decision. I get it. I, I get that she has had her own cardiac issues. And I know that that is uh, due in part to recreational drug use, but weird, weird choice. Uh, Lesha, what do you, 
Please help yeah, me here. <laughs> I mean, I guess this sort of counts as one of those examples where a marketing attempt goes viral for like unintended reasons. I mean, the performance got a lot of attention on social media, mostly because people were joking about it and poking fun at it. But, um, you know, it did technically bring a te- attention to the AHA nonetheless and to cardiovascular issues anyway. Um, and I know that a representative for, for Lovato defended her decision to sing the song, um, according to Entertainment Weekly, noting that she did speak on the mind-heart connection and that, quote, it was a sensitive moment intended to champion the women in the room, the very reason why Demi was at the event. So I, I believe Demi Lovato herself was also defending the decision. I don't know if she talked too much about her personal um, cardiovascular issues at the event itself, but I feel like that might have had more of an impact if she did touch on that because she did, you know, as you mentioned, Jack, survive a heart attack after a drug overdose. She had three strokes in addition to that and brain damage from the strokes that um, she's still seeing lasting effects from. Um, She told Entertainment Weekly that she still can't drive or she's not been able to drive. She's had vision problems ever since then. So I guess in theory, she would have been a good candidate for the event, you know, when you think about it, but the resulting impact may not have been what they originally intended. And it's always like the context of things. Like when I saw that video at first, I was like, you know, you kind of have that yeesh, like yikes moment, but then you see the additional context and you're like, I guess, but even with everything that you just described, I don't know, Mark, Mark, (laughs) what do you think? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to, you know, shed any light on this, but, um, you know, as you point out, Demi Lovato was one of several celebs who suffered and overcame strokes in their 20s. Those also include Game of Thrones actor Amelia Clark, Haley Bieber, wife of Justin. Uh, Then, of course, there was DeMar Hamlin's cardiac arrest on live TV a year ago. Who was was at the event? He was at the event, right. So we'll get to him in a moment. All these cases underscored the misnomer that things like heart disease, cardiac arrhythmia, and stroke affect only older folks. So I'd imagine that's the reason AHA selected her to perform at their event. Okay, so now I'm, I'm not privy to their internal machinations, but being part of you know committees that select and recruit speakers for our own big events, often the content process that ensues after the selection is a collaborative one. So you'd have to think that the set list and the decision to include this song was not a complete surprise to the organization. Uh, and of course, uh, the fallout was that Lovato, as one reporter pointed out, quote unquote, failed to read the room. But the response was mixed. Hamlin, who, as you said, Jack, was in the audience, uh, said that he actually liked the performance. So there did seem to be a a mixed uh, response uh, to to it. And I guess it just, you know, like anything else, uh, it it, what, you know, one person's tasteless decision, uh, you know, kind of resonates with with somebody else. And this is where I'm going to do our own shameless plug and bring our podcast producer, Bill Fitzpatrick, into this, because as of this recording, we have the first episode out of Me and My Heart for part podcast series about Fitz's own experiences with heart disease. Episode two will be out on Thursday. So when you're listening to this, I encourage you to tune in. Fitz, what is your take on Demi? I know you're a big fan, but what is your take on this? You mentioned that to me, but I wasn't really registering. Oh, wait, she's at a heart event about heart health, Mm -hmm. singing about a heart attack. I mean, if she could do it, I guess that's going to be the theme song for the next episode of Me and My Heart, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it it doesn't make the most sense, obviously, but like... I don't know. Everyone's entitled to one of those moments in life or a couple. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it definitely doesn't make the most sense now. I it, think I think I'll have a heart attack. Great song. Great song. No, absolutely. That cool for the summer. I encourage all of our listeners after you're done with this, please go over to 
the this is Demi Lovato's Spotify playlist and and just run through it. Please. But question questionable decision at best. Yeah. We can all agree on that. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> we go to the Super Bowl next, right? We're Jay? going to the f- Super Bowl. <laughs> I don't know if Taylor Swift is gonna be there. I can't tell you that audience, but I know who will. Estella's Pharma. That's just as exciting. The Japanese drug maker announced that it will run a 60-second ad promoting its menopause drug, Vioza, during the broadcast of the big game on February 11th. Estella said it will air a new cut of the Fewer Hot Flashes, More Not Flashes TV spot that it debuted in October. The updated commercial will air after the coin toss and before the kickoff. This marks Estella's second consecutive year advertising during the Super Bowl. Jill Jarek, Senior Director of Women's Health and Urology Marketing at Estella's, told MM&M that the company is, quote, super excited to be returning to the Super Bowl and communicating about menopause to an audience projected to be in the tens of millions. She said, quote, we see the Super Bowl as an enormous opportunity to reach a massive audience, half of which is women, and a good chunk of them are in midlife. Our goal has always been to help women feel heard and their unique needs validated. I think that this is something that Obviously, anybody wants to advertise to the Super Bowl, but especially when there is the potential for Taylor Swift to be there. It's obviously going to, I imagine, juice the size of the audience from a female perspective. And when you have a menopause brand that every single NFL game that I've seen this season has been airing, it's literally since that ad ran in October, it has been nonstop. And I would expect the same thing, especially since that is a point in the game where everyone is just tuning in and getting ready. It'll be interesting to see what the response is. Yeah, I mean, uh, 47% of U.S. NFL fans are women, according to their own statistics. And uh, the net perception um, amongst uh, Latinos, 12 to 24-year-olds and women, is up in the double-digit percentage-wise versus 2018. And that was before Taylor Swift entered the picture. So uh, So that's only changed from there. (laughs) It's only going to go up from there. Um, You know, also looking at the statistics, uh, the average regular season of viewership per game is 16.7 million. The average Super Bowl viewership, U.S. international is 260 million. And so that's, you know, with Rihanna performing last year and everything and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, personalities that we all know and and appreciate uh, in in the sport. Uh, So it'd be interesting to see what those figures are, you know, for next year of of this year's Super Bowl. Uh, But, you know, from a media perspective, seems like a sound decision. I would say so. And I think it's interesting, too, that they're just, you know, not to not to poo poo it at all, but they are just re-upping their ad from October too. So it's not like they're bringing in a new celebrity to be the face of it or something. It's like, yep, this ad has been working for us. And now we're going to put it in front of, like you said, a massive global audience and we'll see what the response is. Lesha, I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah. I just read a headline somewhere that said that it costs $7 million for an advertiser to put a 30 second commercial into the Super Bowl, which I believe is like around the same amount it was last year. Um, but arguably they say it's worth it because, you know, in this sort of era where um, media channels are so fragmented and fewer people are watching television and they're more, you know, streaming television, the Super Bowl still remains kind of that main live event where advertisers want to get their spot in. Um, So, you know, arguably for Stellis, it'll be worth it. Um, Even though I feel like the majority of advertisers during the Super Bowl tend to be like food and beverage companies. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that Bud Light is planning on having a commercial up as well this year. Um, And I don't know, maybe Mark knows a little bit more about this, about, you know, pharma's historic participation in Super Bowl. Has it always been, has pharma sort of, I feel like they usually don't have as many uh, 
companies putting their ads in the Super Bowl as, as you know, other industries. Sure. But curious your thoughts on that. It's certainly not a given that every year there's going to be one. I think it depends mm-hmm. on uh, the category. If it's a mass market drug, like a cardiovascular, I think um, is you know, you, you're more likely to see and certainly menopause affecting, you know, such a broad swath of, of women uh, qualifies. And yeah, it was funny you mentioned that, Lesh, because I was just thinking, you know, as I was preparing for this podcast, that um, when you look at last year's crop of, of FDA approvals, I didn't see any any that, you know, were you know, you know, things that qualified, you know, I I know over half the drugs were like for rare diseases. So right there, you know, you have, um, you know, less than half were potentially like the the kind of drugs that you would see advertised on a Super Bowl, obviously not advertise a rare disease drug on a Super Bowl. Uh, but, um, so I would, it seems like the trends are moving away, you know, from that kind of DTC, you know, mass market, you know, the Super Bowl being the ultimate DTC, you know, media exposure that one can get. I think it's also tough too, just from a, a, as somebody that was raised on Super Bowl commercials and watching them, you want the funny ones. You want Snickers and Doritos the lighthearted or, ones. or you want something that's like super meaningful, right, like the Clydesdales other, yep. of Budweiser. Right. I think it's hard to like put, you know, this is no offense to the pharma marketers in our audience, relax, but it's hard to put Pfizer in between Snickers and Doritos. Mm-hmm. It's hard to put Johnson and Johnson against, you know, like Tums has a really cute one that they're doing this year that we've written about on the website. Like it is hard when you're taking that kind of pivot in terms of mood and direction and stuff. And I, again, I think part of it depends on the game too. Like if the game gets out of hand and I, I do give Estella said that they don't choose where they are able to slot it in. That goes to their media partner, which is publicist. But it is interesting that like they get to it right at the start of the game where arguably mm-hmm. you're going to have mm-hmm. probably the most people other than the halftime right. show tuning in Engaged, whereas like yeah. if, if the game gets out of hand as we've seen some super bowls do you know you're you're paying less and less attention to the game less and less attention to the commercials so and then that's probably the best placement they could they could have chosen yeah. because you know who who among us hasn't like sort of snickered a little bit when you see a healthcare company like you say kind of juxtaposed against the cpg ads and the humor and everything it's like okay come on do we you know is this really an appropriate venue but right at the beginning of the game where people are engaged and sort of uh and, and and uh, still, you know, in their right mind, so to speak, <laughs> is, is the best place for, for that kind of messaging if you're going to do it. And that's probably the other reason why we traditionally haven't seen a lot of pharma spots in the big game, because it's you have to question uh, the, uh, the the ad adjacencies and so forth. Well, I'm not going to let us talk about the Super Bowl and not have a prediction. I'm going to say the Chiefs win. I don't. I'm not. I'm not about to start betting against Patrick Mahomes. Fitz looks distressed. Niners. You're gonna say Niners. Going Niners. All right. We got one for Chiefs. One for I'm, Niners. I'm still bitter about you know the. I, like my, I understand the that loss, and uh, um, I, I'm I'm pulling for the Chiefs in this one. Okay. Know, just to to get a little retribution. Lesha. I have no comments. I don't watch. I don't watch sports. <laughs> that's that's fair enough. Yeah, that's refreshing, actually. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, we were all feeling playful today. I hope everybody enjoys the big game. Thanks for joining us in this week's episode of the MMM Podcast. Be sure to listen to next week's episode when we recap the Super Bowl, and I will be joined by an honoree from the 2024 MMM 40 Under 40 Awards. Take care, everybody. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing.